So Money Episode 1250, Stacey Vanek-Smith, author of Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. To me, the key is that when you go into a negotiation, you try to avoid having it be like a high noon style standoff. Like you have to give me $10,000 more because I know that that's what you're paying my male colleague and it's not fair because he has less experience. Or if you don't give me the $10,000 extra dollars, I'll quit. You like that kind of thing. It can play okay for men. It does not play that well for women. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, we are talking about the gender pay gap and why it's been stuck for a decade. Also, the promotion gap and why it's so hard for women to ask for a raise. My guest is Stacey Vanek-Smith. She is the author of a new book, brand new. It came out this week called Machiavelli for Women. Stacey is the NPR host of The Indicator and a correspondent for Planet Money. Her book, Machiavelli for Women, is a guide for how women can apply the principles of 16th century philosopher Nick Machiavelli to their work lives and finally shatter the glass ceiling. Some of us might remember Machiavelli from our history courses. We may have never thought of his philosophies as being helpful to women, especially modern women, but Vanek Smith makes the link and she's very convincing. Using Machiavelli's famous book, The Prince, As a guide, with charm and wit, she applies Renaissance politics to the 21st century and shows how women can take and maintain power in their careers where they have long been cast as second best. And fun fact, Stacey and I went to graduate school together. Yes, we did many, many years ago. So it's nice to be reunited. Here is Stacey Vanek-Smith. Stacey Vanek Smith, welcome to So Money Reunited. Uh, I know. Listen, Hi, <laughs> listen, listeners. Uh, Stacey and I went to journalism graduate school together a long time ago. Kind we were just doing the math, ago, like almost a couple of decades ago. Oh my goodness! Um, but we still look, you know, like it was just yesterday. I think we still got it. You know, we still I really got did. it. I think so. Yeah. I'm so excited to have you on for this particular moment uh, where you've released a book called Machiavelli for this is groundbreaking in some ways, because for those of us who studied Machiavelli in school, we may not remember him that much. And if we do, we might think of we may not realize the connection between his philosophies and how maybe it could help women in particular in the workplace. But maybe before we get into your research uh, Stacy, we could just recap Niccolo Machiavelli. Again, many of us remember him from our studies. He's the Italian diplomat from the Renaissance. He wrote The Prince. And you have now come up with this incredible book founded on a thesis that his philosophies very much supporting women's ambitions in the workplace. That in the first chapter of your book, you wrote that he wrote, Machiavelli wrote The Prince for Women in the Workplace perhaps unbeknownst to him, but he did. So connect the dots for us. 
Definitely unbeknownst to him, but I maintain that this is true. Yes. Uh, Machiavelli has a not awesome reputation, I would have to say. Um, ends justify the means, right? This is always the, the phrase that's associated with his work. And it's not, I mean, he didn't actually write that phrase, but it's not a complete mis- mischaracterization. Um, he was, uh, like you say, a diplomat during the Renaissance. He was representing, he was essentially the secretary of state kind of for Florence at the time. And it was when Italy was a bunch of city states. Um, There was just a lot of violence, a lot of politicking going on. So his job was very dramatic. There was like the King of France uh, was taking over parts of Italy. Uh, The Catholic Church was taking over parts of Italy. And it was kind of a bloodbath. And Florence was who he was, the city he was representing was broke and did not have an army. So he basically had just his wits to try to kind of convince uh, kings and popes and generals not to invade. So he was always kind of cutting deals. And he did this for about 20 years. And then Florence was taken over by the Medici family. Um, And he was thrown in jail. He was tortured. He had all his stuff taken from him. And he was run out of town. And that is when he wrote The Prince, which really surprised me. So he did not have any power at the time he wrote his big treatise on power. He uh, was exiled. He wrote it in exile. And it was essentially like a cover letter. He was trying to get his job back. It was written to Lorenzo de' Medici, who was running Florence. And he was basically like, look how smart I am. Look at my amazing ideas. And he was hoping that Lorenzo de' Medici would read this and basically be like, you're right. This is amazing. But the reason that I think it ties so so well into the position that women are in in the workplace and a lot of people of color and people who are sort of and, and LGBTQ workers, people who are just sort of outside of the traditional, like people who are not white men with hair, um, <laughs> as they said in 30 Rock. Um, I think the reason that this ties in is he says, he lays out in the beginning of the book that there are two kinds of princes. There are the princes who have inherited their kingdom And there are the princes who have just conquered a new kingdom. So for princes who've inherited their kingdom, he says things are pretty cushy. Everybody knows their name. They know their dad. They seem to have a pretty legit claim to the throne. For someone who's just conquered a new territory, he says things are really tricky. Everybody's a little suspicious of this new person. They feel like, why should should we be following this guy? There's a lot of instability. And that is very much, I think, the position that women in the workplace are in, which is like, we are in the workplace, um, getting, you know, breaking into new fields all the time, getting degrees all the time. By this, in the same way, though, we're not quite on equal footing yet uh, mm-hmm. in terms of pay, in terms of promotion, in terms of like achieving the highest levels of a lot of different professions. Mm. And I'm sure you came across a lot of evidence and in your own experience too, how when women, when they're proactive at work, when they ask for what they want, they're penalized sometimes, right? Because going back to what you said, like it's for those who have inherited their position in the workplace, namely these men who've always had the opportunity to work and have designed work. Um, it's it's unsettling sometimes for like the one woman in the office to ask for more money. And so what would you say, what are the ways that Machiavellianism can help women get what they need and want at work, but without the penalty that comes with sometimes being a woman at work who is commanding what she wants? This, I think, is just the central question. Um, And it, it was what prompted me to write the book, because I feel like I have been dutifully 
reading all about how to negotiate, how to get more money and following all the rules. And it just wasn't working. Like, you know, it was like, okay, I've got to go in. I've got to brag about my accomplishments. And like, that didn't seem to work. And I have to sort of subtly threaten to quit. And that definitely didn't work. And I kept thinking like, this isn't right. I feel, I kept feeling like things weren't going the way they were supposed to go. And then when I started looking at the research and data around women and the workplace, it confirmed my own experience, which is that women do get penalized for asking for more. It is not as simple as like, you just need to go in and get yours. Um, women do ask for raises a lot less, like, like one time for every five times a man will ask statistically. Um, but the reason for that isn't that women are wimping out. Um, it's that I think women are sensing that there is, it's not so simple. So when a woman goes in to ask for a raise, um, it's much different than when a man goes in to ask for a raise. When a man asks for something, that is seen as like actually quite admirable often. So when they do these like cultural quizzes, like what is an ideal woman? What is an ideal man? And people kind of just rattle off their assumptions. Um, an ideal man is independent. He doesn't care too much what people think. He's assertive. He speaks up for himself. Um, he's singular minded. For a woman, it's much different. It's like you're compassionate. You put others before yourself. You're self-deprecating. And those are all good qualities. But so when a, the, the issue is like when a woman goes in to ask for more, you are kind of going against the ideal woman, like the way that you're supposed to act as a woman. So you get caught in this double bind where if you don't ask for more, you're often seen as quite like an admirable woman in a certain way. It's like, oh, you know, she's self-deprecating. She's not asking too much for herself. She works really hard behind the scenes. If you do go in and try to advocate for yourself, um, you might get some money, but people will maybe think less of you. It's like, oh, she's a little aggressive. Um, she, you know, she's sort of selfish. And so even if you do get the raise, let's say you get 5,000 5, more dollars, it could hold you back later because people have negative associations with you. And it's like when, when a position comes up for a promotion or a management position, people just feel like, mm, I don't like her that much. Um, and I feel like I have felt that tension and it was actually very kind of a relief to see it in the, in the data and the research, like, Oh, okay. This is a thing that happens to women. Women do get, I think statistically when women ask for more, they are seen as less desirable to work with no matter how they ask, even if you sort of ask very apologetically or present data or swagger in and demand more money, um, it's you're seen as less desirable to work with because you're advocating for yourself, which is not something we love to see in women. So then when you apply the Machiavellianism, you know, uh, principles or what was the expression means to an end? Um, yes. Which isn't his uh, ex expression, but it's what we associate this idea of being very forceful, doing whatever means necessary to gain power, which we'll talk about power in a minute. But how do you as a woman then advocate for yourself in the workplace, applying the principles of Machiavellianism? I think the trick is to just, first of all, understand that the situation is not fair and that it's really difficult. So just to kind of start out knowing that this is not you you are not, you know, th th this is a lot of systemic stuff that you are not responsible for, but it does not mean you don't have to deal with it. So you have to deal with it. What do you do? Um, to me, the key is that when you go into a negotiation, you try to avoid 
having it be like a high noon style standoff. Like you have to give me $10,000 more because I know that that's what you're paying my male colleague and it's not fair because he has less experience. Or if you don't give me the $10,000 extra dollars, I'll quit. You like that kind of thing. It can play okay for men. It does not play that well for women. A more effective way to go in is to present a collaborative you and me together situation. And that can actually really work for women, both in in leadership positions and in asking for a raise. So um, the first thing you want to do as a woman is ask, is is do homework. You want to get as much data as you can. Uh, Women do a lot better in negotiations when they have a lot of facts on their side. Everybody does a lot better in negotiations when they have facts. So you try to find out what other people in in that position are making. You try to find out what people at other companies are making. You can even message people on LinkedIn. People will be incredibly helpful. Often strangers, people want to help with these situations a lot of times. So you get as much data as you can. You go into the boss's office and and you basically present a vision. Because in in the end, you you have a relationship with the place you're working at. It shouldn't be antagonistic. It should be a, a collaborative relationship, right? And so then it's like, well, you know listen, I'm really excited about my position and the work that I can do here. And I really see that I could do X, Y, and Z. Um, I know the salary range for this position at this company is typically like, you know, between 70 and $90,000. Right now I'm making it the bottom of that range. But I think with the work that I'm doing, and, you know, I also know what my my colleagues make and, and other companies, that salary doesn't seem in line with the work I'm doing and definitely doesn't seem in line with where I want to go here. Because I really think that, you know, I really see a future for myself here. I'm really excited to go here with you guys. Um, but in order to do that, like, I really want to feel good about and valued here. So, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think? I, I think, you know, I feel like a salary of, of 90,000 would be more appropriate. I'm a top performer. I'm a top producer. Here's how much I produced over the last year. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I love that idea of what do you think? It kind of reminds me of instances in my own career where delivering the data and leaving it at their doorstep, being like, here's the data. What do you think? Letting the conversation maybe even go silent for a little bit, get the other person, the boss, the manager to digest it and get them to tell you what you know, show their cards, have them give you a strategy because you'll go play that strategy and then they have to give you <laughs> the raise. If they say, come back in three months or we'll give you 5,000 now, 5,000 at the end of Q2, if you do this, this and that, well, okay, now we have a plan and it's a plan that they proposed. So they have to follow it. Yes, that is so smart. It, so one of the people I talked in for the book was this woman, Neha Narkede. And she is one of the founders of this company named Confluence. It was a unicorn company. She's one of the few female founders of a unicorn company. And what she told me that she did, she also climbed the ladder of LinkedIn for years before that. And she said exactly what you're saying, which is that if you go in and say, I really want this promotion or I really want this raise, if you get told no, she said she didn't mind a no. Then what she would say is like, okay, great. What exactly do I need to do? And she would get a list of very concrete things. She said she always was excited to hear about concerns like, well, you know, Farnoosh, uh, we would love to make you a manager, but we're worried that um, when you work in teams, it's it, they're not productive enough. And you're like, OK, well, what would you need to see from me? Would you need to see like mm-hmm. two more things produced per month? And you get a list of exactly what you need to deliver. You work as hard as you can and you deliver those things. And then you go back to the boss and you say, here, I've like succeeded on your on your terms. What do you think? And then Neha said, 
um, most of the time she would get her raise or promotion because it was irrefutable. And she said when she wouldn't, she would know it was time to leave because this was, Mm -hmm. you were hitting a concrete ceiling, she said, in that case, not a glass ceiling. I want to make sure people know too that in your book, you offer a negotiation guide, chapter 10, tailored to women where some of these tips show up, but so much more real play-by-play for how to power through these negotiations. And speaking of power, you talk about power in the beginning as well. Machiavellianism is a personality trait, promoting whatever means necessary to gain power, though this is a word that is loaded in our culture. We often see power demonstrated with uh, through the eyes of masculinity, right? It's like power to take over, it's seizure, it's dominance. That doesn't always resonate with women and therefore we may not seek power, but tell us why it's important to want power and how we can reframe the idea of power to get excited about it. Yes, I really like that. I mean, I do think that our sort of default idea of power is like an apex predator, right? It's like, you know, you're the godfather, you're killing people or you're crushing people or whatever it is. Um, But when I, of course, you know, looked up the root word of power (laughs) to sort of see where the word came from, and it comes from the word power, which means to be able. Um, and that felt very instructive to me. I remember thinking that, yes, that is exactly what I want. I want to be able. It's, it's more of a sort of a self-empowerment, I think. We want the ability to do what we want, to go where we want, to not have obstacles in our way, to be able to, be, to have agency. Um, in the workplace. And I do think that is exactly what most people and honestly, most humans want in the workplace is just to, to a feeling of possibility and ability where you can shine and not be sort of shut or held back. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of being held back, COVID was definitely a moment where we saw many women have to choose between working or caregiving. It was not the thing where they could have it all or do it all. They literally had to choose. And when it's a life or death situation, you don't work. You take care of your family, family first. How has COVID impacted the way that women will be working in the future and the way that women will be perceived in the workplace, you think? I think that's like the key question for the next couple years involving women in work. Um, we saw millions of women drop out of the workforce. It was just too much with, you know, trying to get the like, Zoom school and work and household. I mean, all all of these tasks have traditionally fallen on women, even in, in like traditional heterosexual households where both people work um, full time. Still, most of the, these duties tend to fall to women. Um, it's just the cultural default. So, I think the the pandemic really highlighted this and made it it sort of forced the issue. In certain ways, I think it's it's a good thing. It sort of intensified issues, so now they have to be addressed. Um, there are some bills going through Congress which might help in certain ways. There's a child tax credit, pre K things like that. Um, but also, I think that the larger issue is is childcare is such a huge issue for women in the workplace and. I think the default before now has been to pretend like you don't have kids or to hide your kids. I spoke with one woman who works at NPR, Anya Kamenetz, who's an amazing reporter, but but she does a lot of coverage of parenting. And she's like, it's so much easier to say, I've got to leave work early to go train for a marathon than I've got to go leave work early because I'm taking my kid to the dentist. And even in my own head, those two things sounded different. Um which was very telling. I was like, oh, cool. You're training for a marathon. Yeah, you should go. And it's like, oh, you're taking your kid to the dentist. 
And my, the default thought in my head was like, oh, you must not be very committed to work. Like, I, I, I couldn't believe that that thought came into my head, but I think it comes into a lot of people's heads. So women just pretend like children don't exist and we're just doing everything beneath the surface and working so hard sort of invisibly. And I think all of those things were exposed during COVID. Zoom calls, you've got kids and family and everything coming in, you know, everything came together. So I think it's a real opportunity to talk about an issue that's been, been, women have been dealing with it in a huge way for a long time. And now it finally got so extreme that there's no denying it. So I do think there's something good about that. It, it was really hard to see millions of women drop out of the workforce. We lost 30 years of, um, they call labor force participation, the share of women going to work. We lost 30 years of progress. Um, hopefully a lot of that will come back as kids go back to school and childcare options open. But, you know, it's, we lost a lot of progress and it, that's really hard. And, it, you know, to hear you, it's a reminder that while books like yours are very important and they'll continue to help women in the workplace, there is a much bigger shift that needs to happen, which is the system, right? And if you think about who's making the bottom line decisions about how we're going to structure work, what we're going to pay, it's men. You know, the, the men are the ones in the C-suite largely. Um, and a lot of those men may have wives who don't work or work at home and or they have older kids so they don't understand the whole childcare conundrum. And, and so what do you think needs to happen from a corporate culture standpoint, structurally, systemically, so that books like yours won't be need, need to be written anymore? I mean, it's great that they're out there, but I kind of <laughs> wish that we could get to a point where this wasn't something that we're still talking about, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um, I think, I mean, part of the difficulty in writing this book was, I think you're right. The change at a certain point has got to come from policy and from companies. I mean, that's where that's the stuff that's really going to move the needle. My book, I really wrote from a perspective of like, yeah, but what if, what do you do in the meantime? Right. Because I do think things are changing. Things are changing pretty quickly. I think a lot of workplaces are really working very hard to make things better. But change takes time. A lot of times you're at the mercy of, I don't think there is one person who has been in the workforce who has not encountered a workplace that was like less than ideal or a manager that was less than ideal who blocked off certain opportunities or whatever. Like I, So that was the perspective from which I wrote my book. But you are right. For the needle to really move on this stuff, it's got to be companies and it's got to be policy. And I think, I mean, from a, a policy perspective, um, the economist Claudia Golden at Harvard has said over and over again that that she thinks the policy that would be the most effective is some kind of subsidized childcare. They have this in Europe, and this just takes a lot of the financial burden off of families for childcare. Um, because a lot of times this is an economic decision, right? You have, if you have a, a couple and if it's a man and a woman and they're trying to decide on childcare and they realize that childcare is too prohibitively expensive. So one of one of the parents needs to stay home with the kid. A lot of times because of the gender pay gap, it will just make more economic sense for the man to continue to work and the woman to stay home with the children. Um, and so and so subsidized childcare or sort of universal childcare uh, can help with that equation. 
Um, for companies now, I really think this is a huge opportunity because we're in a situation where our routines have been disrupted. Uh, none of us is working in the way that we used to work two years ago, almost. I mean, like, especially white collar workers. Um, so I think we're in a position where we can kind of reset. And I think companies have a real opportunity to talk to women and say, what would be the most helpful? Maybe working from home one or two days would really help a lot of women juggle all the things they're trying to juggle. Maybe there's other kinds of support, but I do think this is opening up a conversation before offices reopen and everybody goes back to work and routines settle in. I think this is a real, it's been a devastating time, but I do think there's a real opportunity here. I think companies could really, because I think it's going to be different for different, um, for different professions, but I think companies could really change things and really keep keep more women in the workplace, keep them happier, make women's lives better. Um, and it's not just a nice thing to do, companies. It's profitable. It is great for the bottom line. I think that if we're talking about business, let's get down to business, right? Let's speak the language that is music to the CEO ears, that when you have diversity on you know, your board, in the company, at all levels, especially senior levels, diversity meaning women, women of color, LGBTQ, that is great for your company, for the culture, for the end product or service that you're putting out there. We need all heads, all hands on deck, all heads put together. And this is a financial decision as much as it is a nice thing to do. It's smart money. Oh, yeah. I mean, companies that have more diverse leadership, they do better during recessions and downturns. Um, I remember reading that... um, that hedge funds run by women tended to do better during downturns as well. So there's real strength in diversity, real strength, especially in difficult times. Um, it's like diversifying your portfolio, of course, right? right. I mean, right. yeah, you can put everything on Apple, but like something goes wrong with the new iPhone and like that stock is in trouble. Whereas, you know, I mean, diversification has a lot of benefits besides just being like an ethical issue. It's also economically very important too. Also, let's remember that women do most of the spending in the country and consumer spending is the largest part of the American economy. One of the major engines of the global economy, one of the engines of our economic recovery right now. If you don't have women in high places saying, well, this is what I need. Here's what I would buy. Here's how I would spend my money. I mean, that is just a huge missed opportunity. I mean, you're missing out on different socioeconomic groups, different like genders, racial groups. Like it's such a missed opportunity. And in the meantime, ladies, if you want to learn how to become a force to be reckoned with in the workplace, I highly recommend Machiavelli for Women. By the way, I read this at the pool. I read it by the poolside. It is it is that good, you know. Oh. It's it's it you know, the writing is stellar, the and it made me want to go back and be a kind of a history nerd again and and read more um but it's it's just you should be really proud. This is a, a wonderful book. It has facts. It has data. It has story. It has your stories. It has stories of the many women that you've interviewed. Congratulations and thank you for this. This is great to you know start the fall with a book like this as many of us are heading back into the workplace for real. You yeah. know, and we need some refresh. Thank you. And I mean, another thing too is that having people like you, women who are talking about money, is incredibly important too, because I think it's not a realm that has traditionally been a, like whatever, a a space where women have, I mean, I think women couldn't even have a, 
their own bank account until the 60s Seven, and couldn't have a yeah. and couldn't have credit cards card. not till the 70s i think on their own I don't know. I mean, we money have, has been, women have been shut out of money um, and, and still are in a lot of ways trying to raise money for business. It's new to us. It's new to us. Ways. So I think having a woman like you, um, like a young woman like, talking about money and finance is, is also incredibly important. I think that's the kind of thing that makes a change that may be bigger than, than you realize. Well, hopefully we just make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. Because it's know? really just, not. It's not. <laughs> like it shouldn't be. Um, it shouldn't be. It's not that hard. But it is. But it is. But the community is, is it's important. And I'm happy to have you in the community. And we should celebrate our 20th. I said yes. that out loud. Yes. Anniversary wow. coming up soon uh, from the Columbia J School, which looking at the price tag these days of what it costs to go to Columbia J School, I don't know if I would do it in 2021, to be honest. I don't even know how you. No one's gonna make that money. Budget for that, <laughs> I, you know what I mean. Also, like you know, journalism's not. I mean, I love it. I would never have gone into anything else, but it's not like you know, you're not making Bezos money. A plastic surgeon, yeah, you're not making plastic <laughs> surgeon dollars. No, Stacy Vanek Smith, thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Yes, thank you, Farnoosh. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much to Stacey for joining us. Her book is available everywhere. It's available in print and audio form. If you're in New York, you can go see her read at the Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn this evening at 7 p.m. I'll have the link for where you can purchase the book on the So Many Podcasts website. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll see you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money. Money.